You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 503 for January 1st, 2020. Happy New Year, everybody. On today's show, trumpeter Jason Palmer. This show is supported by its members, without whom the Jazz Session would not be possible. There are now two levels, 5 and $10 per month. Both come with cool bonus material. In fact, this month there have been tons of great bonus episodes. You can visit thejazzsession.com slash join to join today and get access to everything you might have missed. My sincere thanks to Frank Christopher for becoming the latest member. Trumpeter Jason Palmer's most recent album is called Rhyme and Reason. Here's how it begins. Palmer, welcome to the Jazz Session. Oh, thanks, Jason, for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. You seem like one of those people for whom the word busy was coined. You seem to always have your hands in about a million different projects, both uh, musically, as an educator, uh, traveling and touring, holding down you know, both regular gigs and sideman gigs. And uh, it, it strikes me that you're a person who is constantly exploring. Is that a, is that a fair assessment of your personality? Uh, yeah. And, you know, I've made it a, a lifelong goal to uh, explore as many genres or subgenres of this music as possible. So it's kind of afforded me the opportunity to work with a lot of different um, types of artists. So I'm really lucky to be in that position as a side person. So, yeah, I've been busy that way. And in addition to exploring different genres, you've also done a fair amount of work at bringing in music from outside the standard jazz canon. I mean, obviously you write music as well, but in addition to the music that you've composed and that is just brand new to the world, you've done a fair amount to bring in, you know, I'm thinking of your albums uh, after singers like Minnie Ripperton, Janelle Monae, Anita Baker. I mean, you've, you've done a lot to, I think, broaden the available resources uh, that we have when it comes to adding new material to the jazz canon. Will you talk a little bit about that? I, I came across those uh, ideas just as an idea of kind of bridging the 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 idea of 
using multimeter and, and odd time signature and different kind of groove based palettes for improvisation and infusing those ideas with these uh, pop tunes from artists that I was really admiring at the time and I still do. And so, yeah, I just had an idea and I was able to, to produce those recordings. And so, yeah, I think it's something that, you know, a lot of uh, artists, I think in this music, not necessarily have an obligation to do, but have that kind of idea available to them to, to do. And it's not something new, uh, you know, it's something that, uh, that I've seen throughout history of this music to, to have artists that bring in new material from the pop world, from the, you know, from different genres of music from around the world and, and kind of fuse it with this. That's the beauty of this music. It has that kind of capability to absorb different things and still remain pure and sincere. I know I've asked a similar question to other folks who have who have done that, played you know either albums or just particular tunes on an album that come from the pop world. But is there anything different about improvising over that music for you as an improviser, like in terms of maybe the way the chord structures are versus either the kind of Tin Pan Alley era music or modern new composed music? Do you find anything different in the way what it brings out of you as an improviser? Uh, and in a sense, uh, the three albums that I was able to produce in the past few years, I've, I've selected songs on those records that already had really interesting kind of snake-like chord progressions that were really cool to improvise on as an improviser myself. And, and there were a few cases where I would expand on what was already written in those pop tunes. So I think that was one of the, the fun challenges is to find material from these artists that had a uh, core structures that would be fun to navigate for an improviser because that was uh, one of the primary purposes of producing those recordings was to find songs that would be fun for the band to play. Most recently, you released an album called Rhyme and Reason. And before we talk about the record itself, I wanted to mention Giant Step Arts, which is the the label and, and the organization that released it. Can you say just something about Giant Step Arts and how you came to be connected with them? Giant Step Arts is a nonprofit. It's uh, technically not a label because they don't sell anything. The organization was started by Jimmy Katz and Dina Katz, and they have made it their goal, you know, to produce the, you know, high quality art from from artists who are, you know, some of the greatest improvisers in the world on the scene. I wouldn't necessarily put myself in that position, but they they think that of me. So I'm really fortunate to be working with them. And I initially met Jimmy and Dina through working with Noah. I think the first time it was one of Noah's projects that we did a live record at the 55 bar. And so then I, I met him that way. And and then he came up to Boston to record my band, and that's how we uh, 
um, produced the live at Wally's. He he recorded that and did all the uh, photos and and the design and everything. And and just Giant Step Arts is 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 a organization like none other. I mean, he produces these projects. I've I've done th- that project, and I have one in the can that's coming out in March. And yeah, I don't know of any other organizations that you know produce such a product and and allow the artists to keep you know all the publishing and and sell the product ourselves and so we're really i'm really fortunate to be working with them so it's wonderful the band on rhyme and reason is just absolutely fabulous and i was hoping that you might say something about it and about how you came to know each of those folks who are in the band well i've known uh Kendrick Scott, the drummer, the longest. We initially met in Boston when he was uh, a student at Berkeley and I was a student at NEC. And um, we used to play at uh, Wally's quite a bit and also at a club in Austin called the Wonder Bar. You know, I think uh, his his playing is just out of this world. And the way he orchestrates everything, it, it just makes everything that I write make sense. So um, I write with him in mind, but I also know that he'll bring more to the plate when I bring music uh, to him. Before and, uh, you go on to the other musicians, will you just say, just dive a little deeper on that when you talk about him, the way he orchestrates things and it making your music make sense. What do you mean by that? Yeah, there are certain certain uh, sections and melodies that I'll write uh, in a lot of the projects that he's played on about four or five of my records. And um, I'll write a phrase and he'll complete the phrase by connecting something in the last bar to go to the next phrase. You know something that I won't write. He'll just he'll just play it, and and I always have to ask him. You know what what was that you just played? Oh, it was, it was this hemiola over this thing, and and uh, and also he um, he hears the arc of the song. You know he can he can he can play um, in a way dynamically that'll really bring out you know the melodies that I will I will write in, in a particular piece. And um, he's also really fun to play with when you're improvising because he has this uh, kind of telepathic uh, sense of rhythmic propulsion. You know, he'll know when I want to play something on an offbeat, you know, and he'll play it with me without me even knowing that he's going to be there with me. So it's kind of like driving a car that has the intuition to know that you want to make a turn when you make a turn, you know. I also like the way he uses his hands, uh, which I yeah. I just I think it adds a real texture to his playing that. Yeah, he has really fast hands and they're really graceful. And, you know, I think uh, um, it'd probably be fair to say that he got a lot of that from, uh, you know, checking out the Grace Allen Dawson, Tony Williams. And also there's a great drummer in Boston named Lenny Nelson, who was uh, a mentor to a lot of great drummers um, in Boston on the Wally scene. And uh, Lenny has a lot of videotapes that uh, he made, instructional tapes, where he would, uh, you know, break down four bars of an Elvin Jones solo or him accompanying John Coltrane. He would play what Elvin played and then play variations on that. So yeah, Kendrick, uh, um, he's got a lot from, from him as well. So, and he's kind of made it his own, you know.
And you already mentioned Matt Brewer on the bass. Tell me something about Matt. I initially met Matt Brewer back in the early 2000s when we were playing in Greg Osby's quartet. You know, Greg Osby was the artist that, you know, if, if there was an idea of giving someone a big break, you know, playing in his band was my big break when I graduated from college. And Matt Brewer was in the band with Tommy Crane and um, Megumi Yonezawa. You know, Matt Brewer, was he, he could play John Coltrane solos on the bass. I'd never heard anyone play a John Coltrane solo note for note on the bass. And, <laughs> and he was the first one I saw do that in person. It's hard enough so. to play on the saxophone. We toured a lot for a couple of years, uh, mostly in the summers and then in the falls. And so I got to play with him a lot. And shortly after that, I would um, go to Grand Rapids where he was from, where he was living at the time with his parents. I taught at a camp every summer with his family. His father's a great trombone player and his stepmom's a great piano player. And um, they ran a camp in Grand Rapids called the, it was at the uh, Aquinas College. And so we taught at that camp every summer for about six or seven years. And so, yeah, um, just through playing with him and Greg Osby's band and, and then teaching at the camp, you know, I really got to know him. And and he also played on my very first record. So um, that was back in 2006. And so I've always enjoyed being able to play with him whenever I can, you know, grab him because he's a busy man, too. So. And then the quartet is rounded out with a fabulous horn player. Yeah, he's he's, he's not no slouch. No, he's <laughs> one of the great tenors of our time, Mark Turner. And, uh, you know, I initially met him actually at Wally's. It's a funny story because, uh, you know, he had an accident where he cut his finger several years ago. He was up visiting uh, with his wife and he came down to Wally's and I had never met him, but I knew what he looked like. And and at the time, my band was playing a handful of his tunes. And so he walked in as we were playing one of his tunes, Jackie's Place. Oh, wow. And I looked and I said, is that Mark Turner? And we kept playing the tune. And I didn't think that I, I almost didn't believe that it was him because there was he had this stark face, you know. And so he was real zen about things. And so at, on the break, I went up to him. I was like, are you Mark Turner? He's like, oh, yeah. And so that's how I met him in person the first time. And then the first time I got to work with him was at a camp in Switzerland. Uh, there was a camp uh, in Langnau where they invite a group to teach, and they invited the trio fly. The directors of the camp, they wanted to have a bigger group so they can have each instrument represented to teach at this camp. And so it was a special edition of the trio fly with me on trumpet and Becca Stevens was teaching vocals uh, and Edward Simon and Lage Lund. So it was, it was a larger group. And, and so I got to arrange some songs for the concert that we gave. And so that was my first time working with him. And, and not short, not too long after that, I started working with Steeplechase. And um, I had him on my second Steeplechase recording uh, here today. And from there, we've done about four or five records. It's always a pleasure to play beside him. I spent a lot of time transcribing his his uh, work and his compositions when I was an uh, undergrad. I'm really lucky to, you know, be on the front line with him. So. You might have noticed the new tagline at the beginning of the show, voiced by longtime radio broadcaster and voiceover artist Chuck Ingersoll. You'll find Chuck's work at hearchucknow.com. In case you missed it, here it is again. 
You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. I put that there to emphasize something, which is that The Jazz Session really is the first and oldest jazz interview podcast. It started back when very few people knew what a podcast was, and most folks thought you needed an iPod to listen to one. Nearly 13 years later, podcasting is huge, the show is going strong, but I'd like to be able to do so much more. More in-person interviews, more festival coverage, more travel. That's possible only if you decide that you value this show enough to support it. If you do, go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member for 5 or $10 a month. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and more. Thanks for being here for all these years. Now become part of the next 500 episodes by becoming a member. What do you look for in a frontline partner? What makes it work for you? Someone with a really good intuition. I, I think uh, when I play with other horn players in their bands, I always try to listen for, you know, in terms of how they use their vibrato and just how they phrase things and when they breathe and and just the dynamics of everything and just blending and listening. And, and also on the improv side is contrasting. If I'm coming after someone who's improvising in, in, in one range, I'll try to you know, live in a different range, you know, to give the listener a different sonic space to to listen to, you know, horns in. And so when I work with players, I try to find players that do the same thing. Working with people like Mark and Noah is really easy. I don't even really have to worry about that because uh, they they tend to, to play that way naturally. A place that has come up quite a few times already in this conversation is Wally's, which is a definitely an American jazz institution. And I was hoping that maybe you could, for folks who don't know what Wally's is, you can tell them and maybe describe a little bit about what it's like and then how you came to, to play there for so long. Wally's was, well, is uh, one of the oldest jazz clubs in the U.S. It was uh, started in 1947. And it's right in the heart of downtown Boston in the south end on the corner of Mass Ave and Columbus. And they feature live music uh, every night of the week. They have several bands and there's no cover. I practically learned how to play for people, you know, in that space. Uh, this is a space where you can you can play and no one will tell you to play a certain way, you know, unless it's one of your colleagues that, that wants to help you out. And so you can really, I've been able to uh, test out material there and I first started playing there in 1997. Um, trumpeter Jeremy Pelt brought me down there. He saw me walking down the street in front of Berkeley. I was on my way back from Tower Records, and he saw me with a trumpet case and said, so, uh, yeah, hey, man, do you play trumpet? I said, yeah. He said, okay, come with me. Um, he's like, are you in school? I said, yeah, I'm in school. I'm just, I'm just starting now. He's like, do you go to Berkeley? And I said, no. He said, um, what school are you going to? I said, NEC, New England Conservatory. And so he said, oh, you're going at New England Conservatory? Oh, yeah, come on with me. And so he took me down to Wally's. And he, Did you know um, who he was? No, I didn't know who he was. And <laughs> he, he said, okay, I want you to play for me. Right, right when we got to the session, it was a, a jam session on a Sunday. And so I 
took my horn out and I played and I played a tune. I think it was out of nowhere. That was the tune. And I didn't even really know the tune, but they were, they called it. And so I played on it. He said, Oh yeah, you sound good, but you need to work on this. You need to work on that. Why don't you come over to my house, you know, in a few days and we can work on some stuff. And so he kind of took me under his wing and, I love um, the idea of Jeremy Pelt just like driving around Boston, scooping up trumpet players off the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. And uh, he was really uh, kind to me, and he showed me the ropes, and then he brought me down to uh, Wally's on the weekend. He, his uh, night, I think it was either Friday or Saturday, and I, I used to hear his band, and I would sneak in, and I snuck in so many times that uh, I was underage at the time to go in so late. Um, hope this doesn't incriminate anyone, but. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I would sneak in, and then they got used to me, and so they just saw me. They knew me as the young guy with a horn, and I didn't drink at the time, so there was no um, no risk with that. And so, yeah, that was my introduction, just going in, sitting in on Sundays, and going to hear his band, and also going to hear Darren Barrett's uh, band. He's another great trumpet player who helped me a lot when I was coming up in the late 90s. And eventually... Whoever was hosting uh, the Sunday session left, moved to New York. It was either uh, Jeremy or Wayne Scoffrey. I can't remember who exactly was leading it. Uh, uh, left, and so they handed the gig off to me. And so I started uh, hosting the jam sessions there on Sundays. I think in either '99 or 2000. It's kind of cloudy right now. And uh, and so I, I hosted that jam session. And then uh, Fridays and Saturdays became available available to me um, about 15 years ago. So I had a band that played the late sessions every Friday and Saturday for about 15 years. And so I did that up until uh, this past uh, fall. So that was uh, a really great platform for me to be able to compose and, and write for a small group and write for certain individuals. There have been uh, a lot of great young players that have come out of the groups that I led there and have gone on to be great leaders and side people on the scene now. So. I feel like a, a miniature Art Blakey, you know, to have a platform where <laughs> the cast can come through and play. I had a lot of really good uh, Berkeley students, NEC students, play in the band for several years and then go on to, you know, do great things. It's amazing. This topic comes up a lot on this show over the last uh, dozen years, that the idea of how it used to be, the kind of apprenticeships and the regular gigs that allowed people to develop music, that allowed people to develop bands, and just how rare that is nowadays. And I mean, you've got to be in an extremely rarefied group of people who had the same gig for a decade and a half. And, yeah. you know, we're just saying, I mean, that's that's almost unheard of these days. Uh, yeah, especially yeah. at your level, you know, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure it happens with, you know, 
kind of journeyman musicians in in places around the U.S. But I mean, a person who's out there making records and everything to also have a, a gig for 15 years, it seems like it's pretty incredible. I mean, you mentioned it as kind of a laboratory, both for yourself and others. Uh, it just it must have been invaluable for as a composer and a player. Yeah, it was something I was really grateful for, and I was able to really build up a, a repertoire, and it, it really taught me to write and compose in several different ways. You know, uh, there were nights where, you know, half of my band, my working band, would be on other gigs, or they'd be out of the town, and, and so I have to find subs who didn't necessarily have the time to look at any of the difficult stuff that I wrote. So I got into the habit of writing tunes that didn't necessarily have to be uh, rehearse where you know a, a halfway decent musician could come in and play and we could sound like a band it allowed me to to write and approach uh composing you know in several different ways and i think it was a i, I was just trying to think of, of any any of my colleagues that that i knew of that had a gig for as long as as that and you know i know there's some cats in new orleans who who play you know gigs for for that long on that consistent basis. people like jeremy davenport and Yes, but uh, I just wish that this kind of, you know, setup was available to more musicians. And so I'll just put that out there. <laughs> One thing that is or another thing that is central to who you are as a person is the idea of education. You've already talked about your own uh, several times, but you've gone on now to be on, on the other side of the classroom and uh, the workshop. Talk to me about why being an educator and helping to pass <clears throat> this music on is important to you. The first year of my undergrad at New England Conservatory, during one of the breaks, I believe it was around the Christmas break or maybe spring break, I went back home to North Carolina, where I'm from, and I went to my young brother's, uh, my younger brother, um, his, his kindergarten class. And I went to the library and I read a book to them. I just pulled something off the shelf and, you know, I read to the whole class. And I saw all their eyes light up and I said, wow, just reading a book can, you know, make, make their day, you know. And, and so that kind of got me excited about what I could do for young, young people. And so I started uh, not too long after that, I got the opportunity to start teaching in a preparatory school at New England Conservatory in this program called the Woodwind and Brass Program. And, and that was a program for uh, really young um, musicians who were just beginning brass instruments. And I taught in that program for uh, about 13 or 14 years. And I also taught in the public schools for about 13 years as well in, in the Woodwind and Brass Program in the public schools in Mission Hill, part of Boston. And just to see how enriching, you know, music and learning an instrument can be for young folk. That really got me really into, you know, kind of like human development almost because, you know, it develops the, the player and the person to uh, learn an instrument and learn, learn the stepping stone, the block, you know, the building blocks of music. And so that kind of built my foundation of being patient and, you know, really knowing the ins and outs of, of, of music and, and instruments. And I think that really prepped me to, to be able to, um, teach uh, all levels because I was so diabolical in the way that I composed music and played music. I already had that side in me to, to really relate to, uh, you know, advanced students. And so I think uh, that coupled with my interest in, in building, you know, beginners and, and people, it kind of molded me into the, the teacher that I am today working at Berkeley, uh, where I work with students who are just getting into the music and just getting into the instrument and also, you know, students who can really play and students that I would end up hiring in my band. So 
yeah, it was kind of a humble beginning and kind of blossomed into uh, where I am right now. looking for when you're hearing a student play who can really play that nowadays I feel like there are lots of people who can really play from a technical standpoint what is it that stands out to you in a student that makes you think well this is a person I'd actually like to work with on the bandstand there's a a sense of of a student that can really tell a story when they improvise and and this is on top of them being able to uh, you know read music or or recover from you know mistakes that they they may make when they're um reading down the chart but you know when they're improvising which is the one of the principal elements of this music is uh is that and and if they're able to um you know really tell a story that's made up of a history of what they've checked out you know if i can hear what they've checked out not necessarily in terms of them playing you know licks verbatim but if they got certain rhythmic elements down if their time is great if their sound is great if they have um really coherent ideas that really can um, flow through changes and, and if they can go in and out and if their imagination is there in a really creative sense, um, then I think that's something that I naturally gravitate towards. And also just the sense of uh, humor, you know, in, in someone's playing, you know, drama, and just yeah, there's just so many uh, characteristics. And, and I think just being in Boston, I've uh, been able to be exposed to a lot of great young musicians because of the, the schools that are there. There are a lot of great young artists who want to be in, a, in an environment where they can kind of incubate with each other. Another thing about you that I think sets you apart from a lot of your peers is that you have built your entire career in Boston, which, you know, I, a lot of people start out there, especially because, as you mentioned, of the schools. But it seems like, you know, most people answer the siren song of New York City and end up there and you've managed to you know not only build a career but then keep a career going at a very high level uh, without following that that lure will you talk about why me and my wife at at one point in the uh, early 2000s we we were visiting New York a, a lot to see where we want to end up you know find that we were looking at neighborhoods and checking out the the rents and everything and at that time, you know, my wife was teaching and I was teaching in Boston. So we felt that uh, we'd rather, you know, struggle, pay our dues or what we call it in Boston because we, we figured we have a better quality of life there. And and also New York was uh, close enough, you know, where if I were to get an opportunity, I can just hop on a bus, you know, pay 15 bucks, hop on a bus for four hours or seven, depending on the driver and the traffic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
and I could just hop on the bus and, you know, do the hit and come back. And I did that for um, uh, many years. I would go down and play at Spike Hill or, you know, some off club in Brooklyn and, and play with some great band. And um, also uh, commuted down to teach at the new school. I did that uh, for a couple of years where I would go in the morning, um, teach trumpet lessons, come back up uh, the same day. And so um, I kind of had a half of a foot in New York, you know, being in Boston. And and also, you know, a lot of great musicians, um, young ones in, who end up in, in in Berkeley or NEC when they graduate to go to New York. And so I always had that uh, connection to musicians who d- went that route. And so that kept me playing in, in New York occasionally. So, yeah, I, I just think geographically is close enough that you don't necessarily need to live there. To, to work there and keep connections there. It's kind of a best, also, oh, I'm yeah. just, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say it's kind of a best of both worlds situation, it sounds like. Yeah, and, you know, Boston has a major airport, so, you know, you can get anywhere from, from there as well, you know, overseas or to the West Coast or something. So, I want to uh, take a little peek into you as a, as a band leader, particularly in the situation where you have some newer musicians in your band. You mentioned that... Uh, when you started playing at Wally's, it, people would let you play, you know, whatever kind of way you wanted to, unless maybe it was a colleague who was trying to give you some advice. So now, now you're that person who's in the role of giving younger musicians advice. What's the kind of thing you might say to a younger musician, you know, after the the gig is over and you're talking about what happened on the bandstand that night? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. Um. I, you know, I rarely, I rarely um, do that actually, unless musician asked me uh what they thought of their playing uh but you know i think right now i've been lately i've been so fortunate to to be able to hire players who um when they play it's just i'm just so blown away there's nothing i can really tell them in terms of what they can do to uh to make it better you know it's one of those things where i'll say okay what what needs to happen now is you need to have more people who can help you hear you so I just put them on a list of people that I recommend. And there are some cases where someone would ask me, you know, um, yeah, you know, what happened on this tune, you know, or, or did I get lost on this tune or something? And, and so then I assess it and say, oh, yeah, um, yeah, it, it was uh, off by a, a, a bar or two or whatever. And, and, and then I would tell them, you know, sometimes you just got to leave space and, and try to listen to where everyone else is and then just jump back in, you know, on the improv side and, uh, but other than that, you know, I've been in a situation where I've been able to hire students that just knocked me out. So.
what do you do to keep pushing yourself forward? I would imagine it, you know, once you've kind of got a life established, you've got a career both as an educator and a player, you've been in the same, you know, geographic place for a long time. It seems like it would be kind of easy to get into a place where you're doing the same thing over and over again. Are there techniques that you use to, to keep expanding your own listening, your own playing? Yeah, I try to listen to as many different types of genres of music and artists, and I try to discover new new artists as often as I can. But I think the the thing that's helped me the most to push me is uh, just composing. Composing things that I don't think I can play. Um, that's been a real big... Uh, big aspect to that for me um, is just doing that and yeah I'd say probably composing is the biggest thing and when you say that you don't think you can play you mean things that are so technically challenging that you have to woodshed your own music to be able to yeah. perform it yeah yeah that um, just melodically and harmonically speaking te- technically wise, technical wise yeah and also uh, trying to come up with different chord changes that aren't so um, so cliche you know, and try to get my mind to be able to wrap my mind around uh, how how to navigate through those chord changes, you know. and So, yeah, just kind of challenging myself, but also challenging myself in a way to make those kind of things feel natural and musical. That's the real challenge is to, to make those technically challenging things seem really natural and, and like they meant they were meant to be the way that they were. When you were talking about the musicians on Rhyme and Reason earlier, you gave us a little accidental sneak peek of who's going to be on the next record. Will you tell us something about the album that comes out in uh, March of this year, 2020? Yeah, I wrote, well, back in 1990 at the Gardner Museum in Boston, there was a heist. There was a, an art heist where uh, some, uh, some art thieves, they stole $500 million worth of art. There was a great podcast think, series about that heist. That's, yeah. that's how I know about yeah. it. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's called Last Scene. That that's right. Yeah. That's what inspired me to to write these uh, works. And so I wrote a uh, a piece for every piece of art that was stolen. There were thirteen total, but two of them were sketches that looked alike. And so I wrote one piece for those. So there are twelve songs in total. And so what I ended up doing is I, I took techniques from all of the pieces of art, and I used those techniques and those works of art to inspire how I wrote the piece. Give me one uh, concrete example of that, like just so we can help envision yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There's a uh, there's a Rembrandt painting of a boat with uh, the disciples in the in the boat with Jesus and Rembrandt and and I think a few other people. And in that uh, boat, it's it's a real turbulent uh, thing. They're in the Lake of Galilee, and in that boat, I counted 15 people, and so I wrote a song in 15 eight time. And it's kind of it's got this like really rollicking back and forth rhythm and, and chorus structure that kind of gives it an unsettling uh, feeling. And, and so, yeah, that was one. And and there was another one uh, by Degas uh, that was entitled Three Mounted Jockeys. It's kind of a three dimensional piece. It's a sketching of a jockey that's it's like a double shadow with the jockey and so you see three images of a jockey and so i wrote a song that had uh only three bar phrases uh clipped together and uh, i used the uh i used that that melodic uh, thing theme as a part of the beginning of the melody and i kind of expanded from that that's great and who's on this record um, on this record is Kendra Scott. He appears again. Uh, Mark Turner, 
is on this one again, and uh, Joel Ross plays vibes on this one, and Edward Perez played. And we recorded it uh, live at the Intercontinental Hotel in New York City back in uh, April. And you mentioned it comes out in March. What's it called? It's called uh, The Concert, uh, 12 Musings for Isabella. Now, Isabella was the, she, she was the, she started the Isabella, well, the museum. She opened up a museum back in the, I think the early 18, no, 1900s, I believe. And I cannot recommend highly enough to people that they also check out Last Scene, the podcast about the Gardner Museum heist, because it is really fascinating. I had never heard of that heist until, I don't even remember how I came across the podcast, but it was quite good. So folks should check it out. It'd be a, a nice precursor to hearing uh, Jason's new album. Jason, uh, I know from our conversation off the air that you were recently awarded a CMA grant. Will you tell folks, first of all, what a CMA grant is and then what you're going to do with it? Yeah, um, Chamber of Music America, they have a, uh, a, a part of their organization um, where they award uh, grants to composers and everything. And so I, I was recently awarded a New Jazz Works grant. And with that grant, I'm able to produce a project that's going to be a continuation of the um, project that's coming out in March. And so what I did is I, I'm going to transcribe some phrases from each episode of the Last Scene podcast. From some, There were some characters. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the, the characters who were interviewed in that podcast um, who, who made some really, really colorful remarks. And, and they were really entertaining. <laughs> so I'm going to transcribe some of those phrases and make songs out of the actual phrases that I'm going to transcribe. And so each, like each, each voice has a tone and a rhythm. And so I'm going to use those phrases to, you know, outline songs. And so it's going to be a, a suite of music just based on phrases from that podcast from each episode. Jason Palmer, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you, uh, certainly long overdue on, on my end, but I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to come on the show, and uh, I hope you'll come back. You're, you're welcome anytime. It would be a, a pleasure to talk to you about any future projects you got coming up. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. value what you just heard become a member for five or ten dollars a month at the slash join thanks to this week's guest jason palmer thanks also to the respect sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and dave rabel for the logo chuck ingersoll is the voice of the intro hire him at hearchucknow.com follow the jazz session on twitter at jazz sesh j-a-z-z-s-e-s-h and on instagram at the jazz session One reason to follow is that I often post clips from the archives on both those accounts. Take a second right now to rate and review the Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, my poetry, and more, subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Next week, my guest will be guitarist and oud player Gordon Gardina. Until then, support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.